Diamond Digest podcast. I'm your host today, Brian Schlosser, here with my boys, John and Nate. John and Nate, good to see you both. Good to see you. Good to see you. How are you guys doing? Doing great, man. Excited to be here. Yes, sir. Doing pretty well. Got a, got some mashed potatoes with my name on them in a couple days. <laughs> Can't be mad about that. Yeah, you guys got Thanksgiving down there coming up soon. I'm jealous. Oh, yeah, dude. There's, there's literally nothing better than a holiday that just stuff your face. Uh, football no. all day. And, you know, we're a normal country that doesn't do it on a Monday, too. So we have that going for us as well. I can give you that. That is definitely something America's got on Canada. This this is a much better time for Thanksgiving. I, I couldn't agree with that more. <laughs> so in terms of Thanksgiving, I think there's uh, one fan base that's pretty thankful for what their team has done already. The White Sox already inked Yasmani Grandal, which yeah. is, I mean, he's the, be- he's the best catcher in baseball to me. I agree. With respect I to JT Real Muto, but... And what's weird to me is that this is the biggest contract that the White Sox have ever handed out. If I remember right, it was a four-year, $73 million contract, and that's the most amount of money they've ever given out in a single contract. That's crazy. Like, the Red Sox give those out, like, three or four in offseason. Like, <laughs> that's wild that that is the most the White Sox have ever spent. Uh, that really surprised me, too. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, yeah, I think it's interesting. I also think it's slightly interesting that they chose to go big on a – 31-year-old catcher. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love Grandall, but, you know, after watching him for a season in Milwaukee trying to, you know, run out infield hits, uh, you know, God only knows what he's going to look like when he's entering his, you know, 33- and 34-year-old seasons. Um, uh, But I guess, you know, that's what the DH is for. So, yeah, also they they can make those – they can go for that. But no, I think he was a huge pickup and I think it's, you know, good for baseball as a whole to sign, to see a big free agent signing, you know, this early in the off season as well. Absolutely. And getting what he's worth, I think too, not only was it this early, but I think four for 73 is pretty good value for both sides. I think Grandal got paid to what he deserved, but the White Sox, I don't think at least AAV wise overpaid. So it's good to see these deals getting done early and to a reasonable extent. Um, financially yeah to that point uh last offseason we were waiting for uh harper and machado to sign for basically the whole offseason like yeah. even into spring training like yeah. we were seeing we were seeing extensions getting done but we weren't seeing the big names getting signed so i mean is Grandall kind of setting this new precedent of big free agents signing early and just like not waiting around or what i hope so yeah, I, I think that, you know, based on the last few off seasons, it's clear that the dynamics are shifting in terms of how free agents sign and how teams are going to sign them. So if you can get a deal and you can get the money you want sooner rather than later, I think I would assume players feel let's just get it done and move on as opposed to being in limbo and, you know, possibly even going into the start of the season or early spring training, not being signed to a team. Yeah, I feel like that would alter your preparation a whole lot if you had to just, you didn't know where you were going, who you were playing with, what the state of that team was in. If you don't know this until February or even early March, like Harper did, how are you supposed to properly prepare to head into that season? I feel like Rondahl now having four or five months to get accustomed to Chicago, to the other players, to how that team operates. I think that's going to be a huge huge advantage for him for just uh, kind of assimilating into a new team. Yeah, and just not having to worry about where you're gonna go. Like, it, it, like, like Harper had his deals on the table, but like he he knew where he wanted to be, but Washington yeah. didn't give it to him. So the whole off season, he just spent like 
worrying about where he's going to be if the Nats didn't give him the deal he wanted, which evidently they didn't. He, he get he, he ends up getting to Philly. Like they were showing how badly they wanted him too. Like during the course of the offseason, but like he just didn't know he was going to be there until he was there, basically. Yeah, yeah. And his press conference for his introductory was down at their spring training facility. That's how late yeah. it was. It was in Florida or wherever because they did it. Yeah, late was a second last week of February. Like yeah, that's just it's going to be a whole different dynamic as like when it comes to like your approach to the new season. I feel like that would throw me off a whole lot. Yeah, like you're having you're in this time where like all the all big players were getting extended last year. Like it was like Bregman, Trout, Arenado, and all of them got extended during spring training. And Harper's contract is getting announced like within the same time frame that those guys' extensions are, which made no sense to me. Yeah, no, not at all. That's just crazy to see how far we've come because that never would have been the case even five, six years ago. And now yeah. that was that was the norm for the last couple of years. Yeah, usually we used to be able to point to the winter meetings as like a place where, oh yeah, this guy's not leaving the winter meetings as a free agent. Like I remember, yep. I, I mean, I'm an Angels fan, so it's more of a nightmare. But, but <laughs> 2000, 2011 offseason, Albert Pujols gets signed to the winter meetings. Just the bombshell where the Angels pick him up. Um, I don't remember if Josh Hamilton was a winter meeting signing also, but that used to be where your, your big deals happened. And I, I I know for a fact last year almost nothing big happened. Yeah. No, everybody was holding out. You know, of course, everybody wanted the big-name players to go first to drive up the value of everybody underneath them. So, you know, it was interesting how last season and, like I said, the season before played out. And, you know, hopefully, I think just from a fan standpoint, hopefully that changes because, you know, being let on for an entire winter, you know, I mean, it's it's like a tease. I mean, hey – you know, it's going to happen today. It's going to happen today. You know, eventually you're just sick about hearing it. And when yeah. it finally does happen, you know, to what we were just saying, you're already in spring training. And, you know, unless you're a member of the Phillies or unless you're a member of the Padres or, you know, whatever player we're talking about, no one cares by that point. We're, you know, back invested into our specific teams and what they're doing. So, yeah, um, exactly. I think from a hot stove standpoint, uh, hopefully, hopefully things will be more exciting this year. Seeing Yasmani sign early and you know set a precedent or set a standard. Yeah, I hope I get the ball rolling. That's that's that was my first thought at least. Is hopefully this is signifying maybe a new era in this off season. We'll see some uh, some good deals coming up in the next month or so. Only one um, I'm looking for is Garrett Cole to the Angels. Garrett Cole to the Red Sox. You cut out there. Did you say Garrett Cole to the Red Sox? Yeah, right after you <laughs> trade Mookie. <laughs> don't even put that evil on me. Don't you even bring that into the world. <laughs> Mookie's gone, dude. Just deal with it. Yeah, and like, believe me, like, I, I'm not gonna get too much into that. Don't, don't, uh, don't worry. But I, I, I think it could be okay. I think uh, Kyle Bloom knows what he's doing, and even if Mookie has to go, like, I think he's gonna get the best possible return. I think it could check be out, okay. check out our boys' article on the Patrick Ewing effect. Right exactly. on Diamond Digest. Not the end of the world when you lose your best player. Go find out. Go find out why. That was a good plug. That was a really good plug. Yeah, I got you always. <laughs> so another another thing that's going on right now is that uh, some people's ballots are starting to become public for the Hall of Fame. And um, unfortunately, the reasons that that's uh, circulating is the fact that two out of, I think, six now public ballots have voted for only Derek Jeter. God. Yeah. So, um it's not it's not that Derek Jeter shouldn't be a Hall of Famer, but I think most of us are going to agree with the sentiment that 
voting for only Derek Jeter to prove a point or whatever they're trying to do is just ridiculous. Well, I, I think this, you know, is a demonstration of the fact that you have a bunch of old white men that are still in charge of this process for better or worse. These are guys who have probably don't even write anymore for any, you know, publication of substance, but are still members of the baseball writers, you know, of America. And they have a vote, but, you know, they also still think milk costs a nickel, you know, per gallon and stuff (laughs) like that. And they're living in a world that just is, makes no sense to anyone else that, you know, has any sense of the present. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of that, that we, the baseball writers need to really, you know, in the Hall of Fame needs to get a grasp on who is a member of their voting, you know, organization at this point in time and start, you know, either narrowing it down or kind of reining it back into guys that are actually involved in the game to some degree. Well, that would be what I would say is I think you have to revamp who is voting because the people that are voting this way aren't just going to all of a sudden change their minds. And the people that have always voted this way and are going to just vote for Jeter, they're not going to all of a sudden just change their minds at age 78 or whatever. I think you've got to kind of phase these guys out who, like you said, aren't really writing anymore and not too associated with any of the teams and get some of these younger writers. There is probably 50 beat reporters for every single team that could provide better ballots than some of the ones we've seen. Well, and even past the beat reporters. I mean, you know, guys who write for Fangraphs, guys who write exactly. for Baseball Reference. You know, any of these guys who could be beat reporters if they chose. They just don't mm-hmm. want to go that route because, again, it's almost 2020. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, you know, yeah, I, I think that's the key is getting fresh blood in there. And, you know, at, at the least and, you know, possibly even going past there and considering whether you include players whether you include retired players you know whether yeah all fame members yeah yeah no that, that would also be a good like that yeah because this just makes me like i can't believe i'm waking up and i have to talk about Derek jeter being the only name on somebody's ballot that literally makes me nauseous you have 10 spots to fill and there is at least 10 players on there who deserve a vote and you vote for one single player. That literally makes me sick. I cannot believe that is happening. Like, I, oh, it drives me nuts. The problem that I have with that one is that people are using Derek Jeter as, like, the standard of induction. And the problem with that is that you got a bunch of old heads that are using traditional stats as their measure of eligibility, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, sure, the guy had 3,400 hits. There's nobody's saying that he's not a hall of famer but you got guys saying that oh well he was a good defender because he won five gold gloves when there are multiple metrics saying that he was it's like statistically the worst defender of all time and their only argument becomes oh yeah well defensive metrics aren't true yet so like maybe that's not true it's like okay if you have regardless of how spotty they are if you have multiple defensive metrics saying yeah this guy was the worst of all time yeah yeah what 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 what, if you fix them what is that gonna do fifth worst yeah Yeah, like he's down there for a reason like i i could i could just like fall to my left and have more range than jeter had it short (laughs) You're not wrong at all. 
Um, no, and I think, I mean, I, I think I'm assuming for all of us, I can say, you know, I mean, I personally love Jeter, Brian. I know you were saying, you know, you're, you grew up being a Jeter fan. It's nothing against Jeter, but you're a hundred percent right that, you know, using him as the kind of basis for how you're going to create your entire ballot is foolish. I mean, using any player for the basis or baseline of how you're going to vote is stupid. Um, and yeah, uh, there's no doubt that Jeter, you know, definitely did not have much range. There's no doubt that in this day and age, he'd be lucky to win one gold glove. On the other hand, I mean, he was fun to watch. Uh, I mean, I'll never forget the 96 season when, you know, he kind of came about and, you know, just became who he was uh, to some degree. And I know you guys were still in diapers at that point in time. But, <laughs> um, I mean... You know, that's one of the years, especially with the Brewers being so damn horrid in those, you know, mid-90s and really, you know, my entire life. It was just fun to see, you know, a team play like that and to see an individual play like that on the biggest stage in baseball. So, um, you know, I think hats off to Derek Jeter, but to hold him on a pedestal of any type is foolish and uh yeah try to make any statement based on him seems foolish as well in my opinion absolutely and i think all of what you just said definitely merits him being a hall of famer i don't think that's even in the question at all and even if some of these people don't feel obligated to vote for steroid users which sure i can respect that there's still no reason to put one name on your ballot steroids or not you got the larry walkers the billy wagners the scott rollins like there is so many other names that whether you how you feel about steroids or not there is no way that you should be filling out a ballot with one name checked off on it no absolutely way. absolutely not never it, it reminds me i'll not not quite, but almost in a sense like umpires, where they're just like free to basically have have reign over the players, but regardless of the decisions they make, they aren't usually going to get repercussions for it. Yep, like, that's well, yeah. Who's who's gonna who's gonna start anything about this? Like, unless you start getting rid of writers, there's really nothing that's going to be done to prevent like, this from continuing happening. Like a few years ago, I remember they slashed about twenty five percent of them. Like they finally start they started to put regulations on the writers that would actually be allowed to vote you had to like have written for a certain amount of time you had mm -hmm. to have written about baseball within a certain amount of time so like it can't have been too long since you covered baseball for you to remove still. from baseball yeah. yeah but then you still have all these people that are just it's like oh yeah well my eyes tell me better than these scientifically determined algorithms can for <laughs> advanced metrics it's like yeah Derek Jeter was a really good defender because he made a jump there that most shortstops get to with their forehand. <laughs> yeah, like the eye test is the worst. The eye test people are the worst. It's like we have these numbers and metrics for a reason. Just try and read them. Like That's the eye test said that Adam Jones was a gold glove center fielder in 2012 with negative 19 defensive runs saved. And Mike Trout that year had 21 defensive runs saved and did not win the gold glove over Adam Jones. <laughs> that's literally laughable. He literally had the, what was the one Palmero won? Yeah, Rafael Palmero won a gold glove playing 28 games at first base. Tell me that gold <laughs> gloves matter for anything. That's actually Any so Any gold funny. glove like, pre-2014 well, or, or for did the matter, not matter. I mean, well, I mean, the, the whole, again, we're, we're getting back into a process discussion, right? We know the process is broken. I mean, again, yeah. you know, just the fact that this was Lorenzo Cain's first gold glove this year is yeah. nonsense. I mean, you yeah. know, so you can go to both sides of the 
coin, you know, guys who are winning them who shouldn't and guys who haven't and should have. Uh, there's no love. It's a screwed up process. That Palmero thing is still my absolute favorite thing because people will actually try to use gold gloves as a merit of defensive like quality. It's like, oh yeah, this guy won this many gold gloves. It's like, yeah, dude, this guy played as many games of first base as I have in my life this <laughs> season, and he still won. Well, absolutely. I think that's the common notion because when I was a kid, at least when I was growing up until I started to understand and get into analytics, I always thought gold gloves was the good measure of defense because if, oh, yeah. you're, if you're a somewhat yeah, casual you fan, you're going to think that. Exactly. That seems like a good way to measure defense. So I feel like it is back to what we said about the whole issue with the process and kind of just the way we've gotten accustomed to it. Because, yeah, I uh, I think gold gloves could not be a worse way to maybe uh, show someone's defense. Derek Jeter. I mean, I, mean I, I think I think like so what I said, like I think gold gloves in the past few years have definitely been better. Like, they're far less of a popularity contest now because they're actually actually metrics to say, like, well, yeah, this guy wasn't as good as we think he is. Yeah, so, no, that's true. So you can't just take a guy like Jeter and just be like, oh, yeah, we'll make we'll like give it to him because people like him and nobody's going to really complain about it. And, like, yeah. back, back then there was nothing saying, like, oh, yeah, you can do that. Nobody's going to challenge you. But now when we have these things, then they're actually forced to make – like rational choices and decisions on who's going to win these things. Yeah. Well, even the all MLB team, the new thing that MLB is trying to get fans to vote on now, I thought it was really interesting that when you are voting for catchers, it had their framing metrics, mm -hmm. which I think it's a huge sure. step for MLB themselves to be acknowledging the importance of that for catchers. Oh, yeah. Um, so obviously the steps are slightly making progress in particular ways. So, I mean, we'll take the small wins. We can get them us analytics crowd. So Absolutely. I'll take that. <laughs> Another Hall of Fame guy that has been irritating me the past two years. I have no beef with the guy until the Hall of Fame voting started. Uh, Omar Vizquel <laughs> it, last year received about 45% of the vote. Um, Scott Rowland, if I remember right, got about 12. Uh, people, people consider Omar Vizquel the second best defensive shortstop of all time. And it's not like he was bad, obviously. But like, if you're if you're going to go on a on a glove only shortstop, like basically what Ozzy Smith was, but Ozzy Smith was at least like a comp relatively competent hitter, at least for the time, at least like period adjusted. Sure, for sure. Omar couldn't hit. He had he had almost twenty nine hundred hits over the span of twenty five years. <laughs> it, it would it would have been if Omar Vizquel had reached three thousand hits, it would have been like. The same thing as if Jamie Moyer had reached 300 wins. It's like, cool, you got 3,000 hits, yeah. but it took you 30 years to get there. So you're averaging 100 hits a year, and you want to be in the Hall of Fame for that. People want to put you in the Hall of Fame for averaging 100 hits a year. Yeah, it's the longevity thing, right? When you look at it like that, 100 hits a year, I mean, that probably happens for hundreds of players every season. But exactly. see that number, almost 3,000, some of those old head writers are going to be like, oh... And they're guy. gonna and they're gonna they're gonna reward the longevity of this guy for a guy who just like extended his career and was bad, not even like adequate. He was just straight bad, and he played for about six extra years. And he he gets rewarded for being terrible for those six years. Well, I'd much. be I'd be interested, and in, you know maybe it changes the discussion slightly, but you know in writers that would choose to vote for Vizquel but not vote for Larry Walker. 
I mean, you know, we won't know whether that will happen or not, obviously, yeah. for a while yet, and maybe we won't find out completely at all. But, you know, and it goes back to, you know, again, a, a beef with people just voting for one player. But, you know, there are other players who clearly are Hall of Fame caliber players that you can vote for. Um, and all and all it takes is, like, just look, just 15 seconds of looking at the top of a player's baseball reference page. Yep. That's literally it. And, Pretty much. And most people are still going to be voting. Like, I, I think a ballot came out yesterday, and it wasn't a bad ballot, per se. It had Jeter, Bonds, Clemens. Um, I think it had Walker um, and, like, two other guys. And then it had Vizquel, no Scott Rowland. Ugh. And... Again, I have no beef with Omar Vizquel, but I absolutely hate him every time that Hall of Fame conversations are going on because Scott Rowland was arguably as good of a defender as Omar was. He, he yeah. played if – you're, if you're going off a of war, which is something that I know that people hate because they don't understand it, Rowland almost doubled Vizquel's career production in about eight less years. And it gets used as a knock against Roland and Walker. I was like, oh, well, they were always hurt. It's like, okay, if, they're, if they were always hurt and they still outperformed these guys, what does that tell you? Yeah. No, I could agree with that. Like, even if they played less than a standard person would have in the, in like the, for the amount of seasons that they would have had, like, Roland and Walker were hurt a lot. Like, there's no way around that. But if you're going to put up Hall of Fame numbers in lesser time, you should be considered with, like, the people. If you look at, like, a, your, their per rate stats, they're right up there with anybody. Uh, my bigger issue with that is the same people that I'm sure are, you know, having hissy fits over their injury proneness are the same people that, you know, have fantasies about Sandy Koufax every night. <laughs> and, I mean, you know. Colfax didn't play into his 30s and you know he was elected into the hall of fame so i don't injuries happen we're not all going to be able to play 100 percent into our you know mid 40s but you know i think to your point brian i mean if they're able to put up the numbers whether they're you know playing half the season whether they're playing a third of the season or all 162 games they're putting up the numbers i mean there's no doubt they could have been potentially better but they're still Amazing. Mm -hmm. I just want to leave you with this lasting image of Omar Vizquel. Um, so Omar Vizquel, if you look at his fan graphs valuations of like offense and defense, oh, yeah. he had a he had a career defensive value of two sixty two point one, which is great. That's fine. Yeah. I think Roland was in like the one eighties or something, which is like still still great. Whatever Vizquel beat him. Uh, Roland had an offensive value, I want to say roughly 250 without looking at it. Mm -hmm. That's a positive 250, by the way. And the only reason I need to clarify that is the fact that Omar Vizquel's defensive, or offensive value is negative 234.3 over the course of his career. Like, and an 83 WRC plus. Yeah. And this man's being 17, the Hall of Fame. A 17% below league average hitter for his career. Um and that's honestly probably being generous. Yeah. 42.5 career F4, which is probably up there with the likes of, like, dude, I don't know, probably Eric Chavez. Yeah, like, the average, I believe, is 68 well, for position players. So, yeah. 42 is not 68. <laughs> no. I mean, 
we're, we're talking triple a players can you know in theory hit better than that I mean, yeah like, yeah omar viscal was both was far below average as like as a hitter for his career like he was literally darwin barney but he played shortstop in a time <laughs> where there was no metrics like i i was look i was looking at it just because i was curious um omar viscal was a great defender and everything but admittedly i used his last five seasons which were just trash but um if you take his defensive value like per season uh and you take his de- i forget i forget what it ended up being but his defensive value per season using the fangrass measurement was less than that of brendan ryan so as good of a defender as omar was brendan ryan had more defensive value per season than omar did so like i don't that's interesting. Would, would you call Brandon Ryan a Hall of Famer because of his defense? Absolutely not. Of course not, right? So I don't know why that can be the case for Omar. I, again, it goes back to, you know, the people voting. The people that are, I'm assuming the people putting out these ballots, these ballots, you know, as we said, aren't huge fans of these advanced statistics or advanced numbers. And for better or worse, they're living in a time that has come and gone long ago, but such is life. I think I see the ballot. This must have been the one you're talking about, Brian, because this ballot is, it does look really good. Bonds, Clemens, Wagner, Walker, Sheffield, Schilling, but then, yeah, Omar Vizquel just kind of getting tossed in there at the end. That was probably going to be the best ballot so far, and then they just had to had to ruin it there with that vote for Omar at the end. Yeah, it's not like I can complain too much because, like, I'm not going to complain uh, overly for any ballot that includes like over six people, but I, I just don't understand. Anybody uh, voting like, for one person, I have a huge bone to pick with you. I'm not okay with that. It's been it's been years, and people are still questioning the credibility of Larry Walker as a Hall of Famer, mostly because he played in Coors Field. And it's like, okay, you have a tool that exists that can show you how good he was on the road as well. Yeah. Like, like, it's not hard. That's, that's no. what these numbers are for. And, I mean, I would say for anyone that's on Twitter, too, I'll give a shout-out to my boy Ryan Spader. I mean, he's now going all in on Larry Walker since uh, now that, uh, you know, he's moved on from Martinez. And, I mean, some of the stuff that he's putting up there, I mean, it's fascinating to see how good Larry Walker was comparatively to other players of that era. Um, yeah, you know, the names that he's mentioned with, that who he played with, and whose career is relative to, it's it's crazy. And just, I think the Coors effect is just, it, it's overdone. I mean, it's over-talked about, it's overreached, whatever term you want to do. I mean, I'm sure there is a benefit to playing in Coors Field. How could there not be? On the other hand, he's still playing 81 games away from Coors Field. And, you know, to the point that was mentioned earlier, there are park-adjusted statistics. And all of this demonstrates that he's still a Hall of Fame caliber player. I mean, his numbers are in line with other individuals that are in the Hall of Fame. Um, and to hold him out just because he played in Denver, it, it's nonsense. Absolutely. I, I thought, what I've always thought is interesting about Larry Walker is in his age 37, 38 seasons where he uh, left Colorado and went to play for St. Louis, 144 games with uh, 908 OPS and 134 OPS plus. So even at age 38, he's still putting up Hall of Fame numbers and outside of Coors at that. So, yeah, yeah that argument like, is pretty moot to me. 
I don't know what else you need of, of the guy, like, at the end of his career, leaving this, like, hitter haven and still being just, like, a god-tier hitter. Yep. Outside, outside of the spacious Coors Field outfield or whatever. And one of my... His 1997 MVP season, no matter what you try to say about that one, <laughs> uh, he did OPS higher at home than he did on the road, sure. But his OPS on the road was still over 1,100. Like, that's that's all you need to see right there, for yeah. sure. I'm sure at home it was ended up being 1,300 then. Great. No, but he, he, had, he had OPS by like, eight, by, like, eight points. It was, like, 1,147 to, like, 1,135 or something ridiculous like that. Like, that road OPS wins uh, wins an MVP or puts you in the conversation every single year. 1,100 yeah. OPS? Like, that's going to yeah. my that's, like, unheard of. Like, yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> Career 865 OPS on the road, better than many Hall of Famers, including guys like Al Kaline and Roy Campanella. Like the, oh, the no dude, doubt. the dude was a Hall of Famer in both in both places. Absolutely. We were just talking. We were talking about that tweet uh, that that I forget who it was that posted, it, but we retweeted on Diamond Digest uh, how all combined Hall of Famers had something like a 920 OPS in cores, and Larry Walker had like a career like 1100. Like yeah, like it's you, all you, relative to everybody else, right? Yeah, like he you, was you have, still you have this area where everybody's going to be a good hitter, so and that shows with the combined Hall of Fame stats. And then you have Larry Walker being way better than all of the other Hall of Famers in the same environment. It's worth something. It, it has to be absolutely it be. worth something. I I definitely agree, hundred percent. Yeah. Well, I, I'm I'm hoping that. This is this is Walker's last year of eligibility, and last year he only got fifty percent. And big jump. Yeah, twenty five percent would kind of be an unprecedented jump, but I mean, he did have one last year though. What was his jump last year? Seventeen percent, something, like, something that. like that. But it I was mean, the biggest one I think that they'd had year to year. So it's gonna have to be an unprecedented jump for that. So I mean, I guess we'll I guess we'll see how that how that ends up shaking out. But I might I might have been biased the first few years before all this came out because I'm a Rockies guy, but. <laughs> I mean, I've always been on. I've always been on the Larry Walker. I'm much more so on the Larry Walker than Todd Well Todd Helton train. Don't don't get me wrong. I think Todd Helton's got a, a really good Hall of Fame case, but I think Larry Walker is Larry head, head shoulders more absolutely better. Yep. Absolutely better case. So it's gonna be I interesting to see how that pans out. Yeah, I mean, I guess all we can do is keep tracking ballots. So well, there's only seven public right now, so yeah, sure. see what Mr. happens. Tips. I love following Mr. Tibbs every oh, yeah. uh, every Hall of Fame season. That account is so great on Twitter. Oh, yeah. Definitely gotta give him a shout out. Those guys do great work. That is inc- imp- mm-hmm. so impressive the the stuff they put together and the, the big Excel file with everybody who they voted for, who they took off their ballots, out of their ballots. Yeah, it's great. I love that. It makes uh, keeping track of everything a lot more easier around this time of year. Mm. It's one of my favorite parts about the off season, honestly. Yeah, absolutely, definitely. Uh, it's always a good debate between people is who you think's a Hall of Famer or not. That's always going to get a good discussion going between a couple people for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully next time we'll have a little bit more to talk about in terms of the uh, Hall of Fame votes. So we can uh, get a little tally together. I hope Tibbs does the uh, Hall of Fame tracking ballot so we can pull up right. those numbers and just kind of have a little discussion about uh, how people are trending and stuff. And uh, hopefully there will be some good news to share on the Larry Walker front. Yeah, hopefully we've got some yeah. more free agents signed. This grand doll's got the ball rolling. Hopefully next time we're talking, we got some big signings. Hopefully a Strasburger or Garrett Cole pitching in Fenway. I'm excited. 
Boy, you got you got Chris Sale. You need to calm down. Yeah, Chris Sale's coming back. Everyone can hop off the Chris Sale train. I am full on the conductor of the Chris Sale 2020 bandwagon. He's coming back with Ben. Oh, he'll be he'll be back with Fury. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right. Till next time. Signing off with Brian, John, and Nate. See you guys next time. Take it easy, man.